My name is Keith Gellhorn. I own uh, Advocacy. And what we do is we coach neurodivergent youth and adults who live with ADHD, learning disabilities, uh, autism, anxiety, and co-occurring mental health challenges that impact executive functioning. Uh, our clients are students who are in high school. We do post-secondary transition. We all, our biggest mode of clients are post-secondary students. And we also coach uh, adults who are in career transition and uh, entrepreneurs as well. Um, the reason for this, this is uh, ADHD Awareness Month. And uh, uh, I started my business back in 2012 and started doing ADHD Awareness Month, uh, or I guess ADHD Awareness Week events uh, on a consistent basis um, year after year. From 2013 to 2016, I actually ran big conferences that were down in uh, Halifax, and uh, and then I got a, a another business I started, uh, and then came back and COVID hit, and then here we are now. So for this one, I just decided uh, about a week ago, as we tend to do, uh, that I would do five lunch and learns on a Monday at 12:30, and that was going to be a piece of cake. Uh, and then on the first one that happened, only four or five people showed up and I was like, we got to do more. So it went from five to 19 and the 19 are all happening between uh, basically yesterday and October 31st. So we're having a really tight timeline. Um, but anyways, the one for today, I'm really excited about. Um, it's with Dr. Parhar. He is from the Adult ADHD Center, which is based out of Burnaby, BC. Um, I'm going to let him pitch his stuff. He just has a little presentation. He's going to talk a little bit about what he does and, uh, and do a little presentation on adult ADHD. And then full-blown, we really welcome uh, participation um, <laughs> In terms of uh, questions. So please ask them as many questions as you want. I can answer questions too. But without further ado, I will leave it to Gurdeep. Thank you. And really nice to, to meet all of you. Um, known Keith for a bit of time now. And I think the biggest challenge in our relationship is Keith is always racing about 10 steps ahead and the rest of us are trying to keep up with Keith. So very impressed with uh, his uh, um, organization of ADHD Awareness Month and, and um, all the, obviously these webinars. So I'm delighted and honored to be here. Um, I thought um, maybe after a quick introduction of myself, I'll um, let out, set out some baseline stuff around ADHD, just so that it might provoke some questions and some queries that you've all had and happy to try to answer them. Um, my practice before I got into ADHD was involving, um, involved the treatment and management of patients who had disabilities or have disabilities, both visible disabilities, so physical disabilities, and invisible disabilities. So, um, so what we recognized um, some years ago was that there was um, a huge um, um, need and demand for patients um, that were adults that didn't have their ADHD sorted out. We thought there were a lot more resources for kids. Most pediatricians can um, manage and assess kids um, who have ADHD. With the adults, there was really a, a big deficit in terms of available resources. And so we set up our center, for, started out with primarily BC, but now we're in every province. And so we have licensed practitioners in every province from coast to coast um, that will do the assessments. And our whole mission and reason for existing um, is that we really wanted the, the assessments to be accessible. And so what happens is um, the patients complete um, a tool, an assessment tool that includes all the DSM-5 criteria for ADHD. And then afterwards, um, there's an interview that happens with one of our practitioners. 
either physician or nurse practitioner. Um, and then depending on what the results are, the report is put together. And in the report are recommendations for medication treatments and non-medication treatments. So the coaching, the counseling and so forth. And um, to date, we've um, turned out to be um, what started off as sort of a little initiative ended up sort of taking over most of our workdays. So we have a fairly big team across the country um, and we're over 12,000 assessments. And um, as Keith says, um, we really try to keep these assessments accessible at a, at a very nominal fee so that it isn't the about $2,500, $3,500 that is often in, involved for quite a bit more detailed psychoeducational assessment. Um, and, and like I said, I, where our whole point of being was to remove barriers so that patients who think they may have ADHD can be assessed. And if they have it, we'll put forward a management plan, um, which then they go to their practitioner, primary care practitioner to put in place. Um, and alternatively, if they don't have ADHD and don't meet the criteria, how else might we help them? What I thought we would do um, just to set the stage a little bit was um, I'd just review some um, basic, um, basic things around ADHD is that we always um, start with this slide because there's a lot of myths out there in terms of what ADHD is, you know, and, and I'm sure you, many of you have heard it, you know, it's bad parenting, it's people who aren't motivated, um, it's people um, that get it because they have too much screen time. And so we always like to start with this to explain that there's a biological basis for ADHD. And what this is, is a PET scan that's showing the difference between an ADHD brain and a non-ADHD brain. And I'm sure you all know that if you go to get an MRI done or you get an X-ray done or a CT scan done, it doesn't matter what part of the body, what they basically show us is anatomy, right? So if I was having a CT scan done of my elbow, it would show the tendons in it and the nerves and the bones, but it wouldn't tell me if the elbow works or how well it works. So this is an image of a PET scan. PET scan's a bit different. So what we've done with the PET scan is we've labeled um, activities going on in that body part with colors and lights. And so then we can compare an ADHD brain to a non-ADHD brain, not just in terms of anatomy, but the activity going on in it. So if you look at this image um, closely, you'll see that the ADHD brain has less activity going on in it than the non-ADHD brain in, in, in a lot of areas. And then if you look even closer, you'll see that there's some areas where the pink, the pink highlights like more activity going on. So you'll see that in the ADHD brain, there's actually more activity in some areas compared to the non-ADHD brain. So really what that's addressing is the hyper-focusing or the overstimulation in some areas compared to the lack of activity in other areas. And like I said, I'd like to start with this because we want people to understand that there is a biological basis. And I often say, you know, it's kind of like if you had a patient or a client who had diabetes, we wouldn't say, you know, it's just high sugar. No, we would recognize it as a condition or a disorder. And, the, and, and I think that's really important for patients and family members and employers and, and Keith mentioned schools to understand that this is a condition that has a biological basis for it and it needs to be addressed. There's other studies that have shown the differences in the brains in terms of the brains being different in their volume and their thicknesses. Not sure if that's so important or if we can even do anything about it, but what is important are these two chemicals at the bottom, dopamine and norepinephrine. You might remember back in high school biology, when neurons communicate, they don't physically touch like this. There's a gap and a messenger has to go across. And many of you will know that messengers like serotonin are important for depression and for anxiety. The two messengers that we think are really important for ADHD are dopamine and norepinephrine. So we think if we can improve the dopamine and norepinephrine levels, that will improve the functioning of the person's brain with ADHD. And that's important for the entire part of the brain, but especially the part of the brain that's at the front, the front, what we call the frontal cortex. 
So this is the part of the brain where we do the higher level executive functioning, the laying down of memory, the emotional responses, the attention. So when we talk about ADHD, you'll hear a lot of people talk about emotional dysregulation. So interestingly, it's the same part of the brain that we're trying to target that causes the emotional dysregulation as well. Um, just a couple of other points I wanted to make, and then, then, then I'll stop um, and entertain some questions. This is another really important aspect of ADHD is the genetics behind it. You know, when we started our center six years ago, we used to politely ask, is there someone in your family who you think might possibly have ADHD? We were so overwhelmed with the amount of ADHD that ran through families. Now we just ask, which parent has it? Which kid has it? Which sibling has it? Because it is that common. This may or may not surprise you, but this chart, this table is showing that the next most inher inherited trait from your parents after height is ADHD, likelihood of having ADHD. So what does this mean? Tall people have tall kids, short people have short kids. That's, in, that's a very inherited trait. After that, the likelihood of having ADHD or not having ADHD is, is the next most likely inherited trait um, passed on from, from our parents. And then all the other conditions are much, much later and after, are, are less significant. And so we, we think if a parent has ADHD, the likelihood that one of the children has it is pretty high, almost 60%. If one child has it, the risk at least one parent has it is 55%. And if one of the children has it, it's likely the one-third um, likelihood that one of the siblings has it. So why am I explaining this? It's important to find patterns within family units as well. Um, and so if you're trying to help an entire family unit, and I know Keith works with you know, several generations of, of clients sometimes, is trying to also identify where else it might be affecting that family unit. This is one of the things that is really important. And, you know, and one of the myths that goes on is thinking that people at 18 somehow magically um, don't have ADHD anymore, right? There's nothing magical about those 18 candles. Um, and what we're saying is that kids with ADHD become adolescents with ADHD, and adolescents with ADHD become adults with ADHD. Now, there are a lucky, perhaps 40% that truly outgrow ADHD, but the majority of kids in adolescents with ADHD do become adults with ADHD. Now, in our world where we see adults with ADHD, this is the frustrating part is 80% of them have either never been diagnosed um, or they've been diagnosed when they were younger, but they weren't treated. The, the number that we work with is about 4.7% of the population. So we think 4.7% of the population of adults has ADHD, which doesn't make it rare, right? So if you think if you're in a room with 20 people, one of them has it. One in one, 5% is about one in 20. If you're in a room with 40 people, two people have it. So this isn't a rare, um, as we call in medicine, a unicorn. This is a fairly common um, condition. Um, just a couple of other comments um, around male, female. And we talk about gender quite a bit. When we're talking about ADHD because we know that um, females tend to present differently than males. Um, and one of the things that we find, especially amongst younger females, is that they tend to be a little bit more inattentive, whereas males tend to be more physically hyperactive and a bit more impulsive. You always have to be careful with these kind of statements because you don't want to further ingrain stereotypes because I've seen many young females that started off in, in elementary school as quite hyperactive as well and many boys that started out quite inattentive so you have to be careful with the stereotypes but these generalizations sometimes help us understand why so many females got missed earlier on in their lives and now are being picked up later in adulthood. Here's the interesting and challenging part about adults with ADHD. With age, so if you think about childhood, adolescence, and adulthood, the inattentive symptoms tend to stay. 
The physical hyperactive symptoms and the physical impulsive symptoms or the activities tend to go down. Now, my theory on this, and it's just a theory, and I can't necessarily prove this, I think part of this is social um, conditioning, right? So when we're when children are more likely to bounce off walls and fidget and stuff, and when it becomes socially unacceptable for adults to do that, I think there's a certain containment that happens that we try to control ourselves. So that tends to decrease. Now, the comorbidities, I don't even like the word comorbidities, but the coexisting conditions with ADHD go up with age. What that means is you're more likely to see a child who has just pure ADHD and no other mental health condition. But with adults, you're more likely to see the adults have ADHD and also depression, or ADHD and also anxiety, ADHD and also substance use, or ADHD and bipolar, or ADHD and um, um, schizophrenia. So you're more likely to see that. And this is what makes um, assessing adults with ADHD more challenging because often we're dealing with the coexisting conditions as well. And then there's a lot of other things other than the few I mentioned. So mentioned bipolar and substance use. Um, a lot of substance use issues and disorders are actually impulsive behaviors. And we're of a strong opinion that if you want to address many people's substance use, it, you may have to also treat their underlying ADHD, eating disorders and bipolar disorders as well. And Keith mentioned that in his um, client base, he sees a lot of um, adolesc adolescents, but college age and older. But one of the things to keep in mind is that the preschool, in the preschool age, there's often behavioral issues. In the school age, there's academic issues and self-esteem and social issues. Adolescence is a time where we're already testing boundaries, right? Any teenager, whether they have ADHD or not, are likely to test boundaries in terms of substances and driving and you know, physical sexual encounters and all that. Now add, add to that a layer of ADHD, it means those behaviors get even riskier. Now where we see people and advocacy sees people is right about here, which is college age. And so when we see them, um, this is when they're struggling with academic difficulties, or if they're in the workforce, they're struggling with work, relationship issues, traffic violations, um, co co coexisting conditions, or we see them in adulthood where they're, they're getting fired uh, or they're having to quit their jobs, um, they're having difficulty in their relationships. And like I said, they may have coexisting conditions. Now, in terms of, you know, when we think about, and Keith and I have really struggled with this, is we get frustrated when we hear so many of our clients and patients not getting the treatment they want. And when we ask why, it'll be things like, you know, the practitioner is nervous about prescribing stimulant, or they're nervous about making a diagnosis. And I guess what I'd like to do and what Keith and I like to do is change that paradigm, the thinking. If you're worried about prescribing stimulant medications or ADHD medications because there's some risk, what's the risk of not treating the ADHD? And that's what this slide is meant to show. Um, so the, the, the blue bars there, the teal colored bars are, are um, patients with ADHD and, and the black ones are people with the gray, black gray ones are the people without ADHD. So you can see that people with ADHD have more teen pregnancies, um, sexual um, diseases, um, substance use, get in trouble with the law, more likely to have accidents, have interpersonal problems, relationship issues, struggle. They struggle more with repeating a grade, um, entering college, um, being unemployed, getting fired from a job. So I guess my pushback now to my health professional colleagues is what's the risk of not treating ADHD? And are you willing to accept that risk? Um, the criteria um, at our center, we're very, very strict about the criteria. We want to be able to defend the diagnosis of ADHD. You know, and, and it's challenging sometimes because people get referred to an ADHD center. It's kind of like when I refer my patients to the fibromyalgia center or I refer them to the chronic fatigue center. You know, by the time they come to the adult ADHD center, sometimes 
they already have convinced themselves they have ADHD, they've got the t-shirt, they've got the tattoo, they've got the wristband, right? But, but then if they don't meet the criteria, we have to sort of explain what else it could be. And so there's a group of symptoms we look for, how long the symptoms have gone on for. And this is important, is that the symptoms have to be presented before the age of 12. And this is often a criteria that's difficult to tease out, especially I'm 53 years old. I don't know how much of my life before age 12 I would remember. So we're trying to get that collateral information from parents or report cards is important. They have to have symptoms in at least two settings. So work and home, um, home and school, um, and social settings. They have to be at least two settings. And the symptoms have to be severe enough that they interfere with daily function. And the comparison is depression or anxiety. Everybody's allowed to feel a little bit sad, but we don't call it a major depressive disorder. Everybody's allowed to feel a bit anxious and we don't call it an anxiety disorder. Same thing with ADHD. Everybody forgets things once in a while, but we don't call it a disorder until it actually interferes with, the, with daily functioning, whether it's in the school world, in, in their social settings and other things. And, and, the, and the symptoms can't be explained by something else. So the classic example here is somebody says, you know, I was totally fine until I was nine years old. And then I fell out of a treehouse and hit my head. And ever since then, my concentration and memory have been really bad. Well, you know, if you hit your head because you fell out of a treehouse at the age of nine, most likely that's a traumatic brain injury and a concussion. Um, and then we can't diagnose ADHD. Now, having said that, if you fell out of the treehouse at nine because you couldn't sit still and you're physically hyperactive, you may have had the ADHD even before the traumatic brain injury, in which case then you have both. So a bunch of a, a mnemonic, a friend always says to me, he says, Gurdip, you know, you're bored when you make a mnemonic up that has your name in it. Um, so this happened over COVID. But, you know, when we look at um, performance issues, these are, these are meant to be um, things that we should ask on interview when we're looking at our clients or our patients to see what, that if they could be having ADHD. So this is not a diagnostic criteria, but sort of a screening on what to ask in an interview. Are they having performance issues in school and work and other settings? Is their attention and focus compromised? Are they doing risky behaviors? Are there hyperactivity, hyperactivity impulsive behaviors going on, like binge eating, like online shopping? Um, are there academic or developmental problems that started in elementary school then went into secondary school? Is it affecting relationships? So just thinking about different questions to ask. I'm not gonna bore you with these details, but we often take the childhood symptoms and then overlap them into adulthood. So when, we, when you say to a child, you're not listening when you're spoken to directly, now, in adulthood, it might be somebody we're having a conversation with, but their mind is somewhere else, right? A child that doesn't do their homework could be a professional in whatever field who doesn't finish their paperwork, right? Um, a child might lose their pencils and their pencil case and maybe their jacket, but these will be the adults that keep losing their keys and wallets and stuff. We interviewed somebody this week who said she had replaced her driver's license four times this year, and it's only October, right? Because she keeps misplacing her wallet. Um, and then on the impulsive side, the same things. These are children who can't sit still. And now there'll be the adult in a meeting, something like we're doing right now, that says, I need to get up and stand. Um, maybe they have a sore back and they have to stand, but a lot of times it's because they can't sit still. They talk too much. Um, they interrupt people. When they're asked, when somebody's talking to them, they'll interrupt and answer a question before the question's finished being asked. Um, the joke I tell is it's almost like their whole life is a Jeopardy game and somebody's interrupting them all the time. So who are the people that we should be thinking about? People who have difficulty with um, organization, time management stuff, and this is what advocacy and Keith's team are really good at helping people with. They're struggling at work, they're struggling at school, they have interpersonal problems, anger issues, um, or they have difficulty with self-regulation, impulse problems. I remember seeing um, a patient a few months ago and 
the, you could tell the partner had brought him in. They were both there. And she says, um, I said, does he do things impulsively? And she says, okay, tell him, tell him, tell him what you do on the way here. And he says, okay, I went through a yellow light. And he said, not one yellow light. She said, he went through four yellow lights. And it wasn't like he was a few meters away from the intersection. He was a half a block away from the intersection, saw it turn to yellow and then gunned it. And he did that four times on the way to the, to the appointment. Um, just a quick words on some um, screening tools. The ASRS is fairly common. I can get you these if anybody wants copies of them. And then a little bit on intervention, I promise I'll stop talking, but um, is, is that, you know, we always say that the medications are a last resort. I know I started off by talking about medications, but we really want the medications to be a last resort after someone's exhausted all the non-medication strategies. So psychoeducation, behavioral stuff, the coaching that Keith's team does, vocational um, coaching, lifestyle coaching, and, and um, setting up routines for yourself. And if it does get to medications, um, we really need to make sure the patients understand what their objectives are with the medications. Um, and then we go through a selection process of which medications would be the best, and then how to adjust the dosages, and then ongoing follow-up. And just a quick word on medications. Um, there's two groups of medications that are considered first-line treatment. There's the amphetamine-based ones, and in this family are Adderall, XR, and Bivans. We don't use the short-acting dexedrin. Um, and then uh, there's a methylphenidate or Ritalin-based ones, and there's three medications there, by Fenton, Concerta, and Foquest. Now, the good news is that both families of medications work fairly well. In fact, both of them have about an 80% response rate. Um, I'm just going to show this quickly. Um, so bo both families of medications have about an 80% response rate, so the people will do well with both um, sets of medications very well. And it's not even um, how, do you, how you choose one over the other is fairly random. And then there's a group of medications called non-stimulants. Um, and the ones, the only one that's approved for adults is atomoxetine or stratera. And we use the non-stimulants when somebody can't tolerate a stimulant. Um, I think I may just stop there and then entertain any questions. And maybe some of these other items will come up afterwards. Thank you so much for, uh, for sharing that. That was uh, about as fast as I talked myself. So that was probably about a... <laughs> hour-long presentation wrapped up into 10 minutes. So I appreciate your style uh, as well. So yeah, I, I, if anybody does have any questions, I want to just open it up for that. Um, in the meantime, just before, well, actually, yeah, let's, let's open it up. And if anybody has questions, feel free to ask away. I'm also monitoring the uh, Facebook Live that is currently happening. So I'm, I'll field questions from there as well. Um, yeah, have at her. Yep. So I'm just wondering if there's a correlation between early treatment, like maybe at a high school level, and having less severe adult ADHD symptoms. That's an excellent question, Ken. And I would say to you, yes, that there is. Um, and, and, and we talk about management of ADHD, as I said, really focusing on the non-medication approaches first. If you can get the clients, um, clients ADHD addressed earlier, high school, even elementary school, there's a lot of behavioral things and educational things that can be put in place. So they're not spinning and, and, and spiraling out of control and doing things that are dysfunctional later in adult life. I would say the behavioral stuff, whether it's the coaching, the counseling, setting up routines, setting up schedules, um, if you can get the client, the patient on board with that, in elementary or high school, they will function better when they're adults. Now, in terms of medications, we don't have a lot of studies that say that if you treat somebody early on versus treating them later, 
um, that the outcome is, sorry, that they will need any less medication or that they do necessarily any better. Um, I guess another way to say that is that it's always best to start someone earlier, not just because of better outcomes later in life, but because you're helping them for this stage right now. The risk of not treating them younger is that, the, that other things happen, right? So like I said, in adolescence or high school, if we don't address the issues that are going on then, they're more likely to be you know, other coexisting conditions like depression, anxiety when they get older or even at that age, be more likely to have substance use issues, more, more issues with the law, more, more difficulty with, with um, um, sort of relationships. So to answer your question, it's always best to treat someone earlier. And it's not so much that the ADHD is better, but all the dysfunction that the ADHD could potentially cause will be better managed if you treat them earlier. Okay, there's the way that uh, students with ADHD right now are managed with their academics in high school is through what's called an IPP, that's an individualized program, uh, participation program. So um, there's a huge stigma that a lot of these kids feel when an EPA comes and sits beside them uh, and, and they're 17, 18 years old and is trying to walk them through a, a process and it's very conspicuous. So I, I'm wondering how, how you feel about that for students with ADHD to be singled out that way. That's an excellent question, Ken. And so we um, don't um, treat um, kids that are under 18 or clients that are under 18, but we see them at the university and college level. And I can tell you that even happens at the college and university level. So when we talk about school accommodation, so things like a separate room to write your exam, um, extra time for the exam, extra time for projects and assignments, getting some of the notes in advance, all the stuff that we can do in terms of accommodation, our students fall into two categories. One group says, sign me up, I want all of that, right? Because mm -hmm. I know that that's gonna help me succeed. Other ones are, you know what? I don't wanna be any different than my classmates. I don't want any of that. Um, I may struggle, but I don't wanna be different. Now you take that to even high school, whereas you know, peer pressure and stigma and social interactions are important. Um, to the well-being, your sense of self-confidence, you don't want to be different, you want to fit in. I can see that being a problem. And I can't, I, you know, it's hard to, it's hard not to understand why they, why, why high school students wouldn't want to, or would want that person sitting next to them. The challenge for us becomes that, then are we willing to let them struggle? Um, and, uh, or do we address that? And I think there's different ways to sort of give them that support. If somebody absolutely needs somebody sitting next to them, I don't know how you do workarounds on that. You know, I think there may be um, ways of getting notes in advance or having that person support them, but not during live class time, doing it before the class or after the class. But I agree with you, having somebody sitting um, with the student in the class because that's what they need is tricky. Um, and I, I, don't, I don't know how to do that um, in, in order to remove the stigma. I think, I think it's a tricky one. Um, having said that, if that's what they need, you know, that is, that is the, the, the best support for them. And somehow we have to address the social consequences of it. Yeah, thanks for your answer. Yeah, so can, I, can, I, can I bounce that to you, Keith, for a moment? Sure. Uh, I, know, I know your clients tend to be a bit older. What do you do with the younger ones that say, I don't, I don't want that person sitting next to me in the class? Uh, it's a tricky one. I mean, a lot of people don't get that option in the classroom, right? It's more for higher behavioral issues, uh, autism, Down syndrome, 
some of the the higher end or higher needs disabilities. And for the most part, I mean, again, I don't I do a little bit in the at the high school level. Um, most of the individuals that I'll coach at that level, at best, they'll get to go and work in resource. I say get to go. It's still embarrassing too to walk down the hall and walk into resource because everybody knows where you're going. It's not it's not a very inclusive environment by any means. Um, at the post secondary level, um, there are certain disabilities that can get accommodations to have an accompanier. Again, it's more so um, like on the higher uh, physical disabilities rather than ADHD. Even though it could benefit us, I say us in general uh, uh, for sure. Um, the more common ones that are like if you if you go into post secondary and you're not going in with a plan. The, the bare minimum is basically what they're going to give you. They'll give you extra time on exams, usually about time and a half. You can write in a private room, but even writing in a private room isn't an easy feat. So it's not like you get your test and you write in a private room. You have to go to go to your professor uh, with a piece of paper, get them to sign off on it. When's the test? What's happening? Go down, uh, book it in the library and... Uh, uh, get them to sign off on it and then s- give it back. So it's a whole executive function process just to do that. So that's a barrier in itself. Any paperwork is like, I say it's like kryptonite to Superman, right? Um, but those are the two uh, basic ones. Then if you get further into the uh, the grants, right? So I'll just briefly talk about it. If you're a post-secondary student and you self-identify as a student with a disability, you can qualify for up to $24,000 in grants. The first $4,000 is based on financial needs. So, uh, and I say grant money is free money. So the first $4,000, it's different in every province, but it's around a cutoff of about $80,000 to $90,000. If that's what your parents are making, you probably won't get the grant. If it's below that, and again, you have to go through student loans to verify, uh, and you qualify for $1 worth of student loans, not that you have to take the loan, you just have to qualify, um, you can get that $4,000 grant. What that basically equates to is $2,000 per semester off your tuition. The as soon as you you qualify for that one, then you qualify for two other ones. You get services and equipment. On the services side, you can get up to six hours a week in tutoring. Uh, you can access uh, academic coaching that we provide. Um, you can get, uh, that's the, also the extra time on exams and studying in a private room and note takers. But even this year, because of COVID and all the universities are typically recording lectures at this point, note takers aren't aren't quite being used as much. So now what they're saying is like, well, we recorded the lecture, just go back and watch that, which is a benefit. But how many, if they're, if you're distracted in class, how many students do you think are going to sit outside of class and rewatch a two hour lecture? It's not, not all that realistic. And then one final piece, uh, not at the university level, um, but this is at a college level, you could do something called an accommodated course reduction. So instead of doing say a two-year set program, like this is what would be happening here in Nova Scotia. We have uh, these community colleges, typically two-year programs. Instead of doing it in two years, you can actually do it in three or four. Um, You don't have to pay tuition for the extra couple of years to do it, but you can just spread your courses out and take your time. Um, Then on the equipment side, what everybody seems to like is $2,000 towards a laptop or a tablet, $300 for noise-canceling headphones, any kind of assistive technology you can possibly think of. And the list goes on and on and on and on. 
The one thing, though, is that a lot of uh, people, they'll go get a psych ed assess, but this is what we're talking about. This is part of the reason I, I hunted for Dr. Parhar, because you don't need a psych ed assessment necessarily to go to college or university. It's this delusionary thing that everybody thinks they need, but it's not true. It is good to have, if there's an underlying uh, learning disability that you might be concerned of, or you need some bigger um, information around the, 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 the uh, diagnosis, it's fair to have. But what I often see is uh, people coming in with their psych ed and they have the, uh, the uh, accommodations at the back and just taking the, the whole accommodation sheet and say, give me this stuff, right? They say, it, I need it, so I need all of that. And you can't do that. You have to say, I need this for this, this for this, this for this. So you have to have a, this is the other issue. You have to, imagine an 18-year-old kid coming out of high school where mommy and daddy did all that advocating for you and you hit post-secondary and you're expected to somehow have this massive level of self-awareness to be able to articulate what you need. It's just not realistic. So it's another part of the reason why we're doing what we're doing. Hi, uh, my question is surrounding um, the types of testing that you do. And and Keith, I wanted to say, as you were speaking uh, about the executive function required to get the accommodations, my daughter qualified for all of them and missed out on half at university because she couldn't get the paperwork done to get the separate room for the testing. Yep. So it, it's it's true. It happens. It really does. Um, my question is surrounding the the different types of testing. So I personally have experienced um, ADHD testing late in life as an adult, and the <clears throat> I nearly left the room before doing the test because I I could predict the outcome before even sitting down. Um, you know, placed in a quiet room with no distractions in front of a computer, where I was going to do a timed test that required me to pay attention to the screen similar to a video game and press a particular button on the keyboard and i thought as i was starting the test i was thinking well this is a video game and a test and i'm good at both so this is going i'm going to pass this test because i'm going to very easily be able to hyper focus on this and do exactly what's required of me and sure enough if my if my tests were being scored I would have scored 100%, which is definitely not an ADHD diagnosis. Um, so I, you know, I'm not, I'm not formally diagnosed with ADHD because of my ability to pass that test, but it was the only test that was done. And so I'm wondering what different types of testing um, you do in order to make a diagnosis. So this, thank you, Lori, for that. And, and I feel, um, like I need to apologize on behalf of the healthcare system that you went through that um, because that's not the way that you make the diagnosis of, of ADHD. So how we make the diagnosis is, um, is by doing an interview and that interview has to include um, understanding what you were like when you were a child um, and understanding what your symptoms are like now. Um, and I'm just going to put up that one um, point again, one second. Um, so that you can all see this. Um, so the, I'm just going to go back to the criteria. Um, so this is from what we call our, our psychiatric Bible. It's called the DSM-5, and that's the, what's being quoted at the bottom there. So in it, in this book, um, I guess it's online now, are all the different psychological disorders and what the criteria has to be so that you get diagnosed with it. 
So to meet the criteria for having, for example, obsessive compulsive disorder, they have certain symptoms and they have to be there for a certain amount of time. So what the DSM-5 says is in order to make the diagnosis of ADHD, there have to be five or more symptoms um, for adolescents or adults um, and, um, and for kids, it's six or more symptoms and, and I can show you the symptoms. The symptoms have to have been there for at least six months. Um, the symptoms have to have come on before the age of 12. I thought, Laurie, you were gonna ask about this because this, as I said earlier when I was speaking, is one of the harder criteria to, to get your, wrap your head around because we don't often have access to that information when somebody's 30, 40, 50 years old. With kids, it's easier because they're in that age group. The symptoms have to be there for at least two settings. They have to interfere, interfere with their daily functioning. And like I said before, the, the symptoms of attention and, and hyperactivity can't be explained by something else. You'll see here, there's no video game as the criteria. And even though I started off my talk by, by showing you this PET scan, we don't actually do PET scans to make a diagnosis. This is for research purposes. And for me to make the point that there is a difference between an ADHD brain and a non-ADHD brain, but we don't do PET scans to make a diagnosis. Um, and so going back to your question, what you were asked to do there might, might give some information about how you do in a testing situation, but you can't make the diagnosis from that. Um, and so when you ask about the different ways to make a diagnosis, they have to involve um, understanding all these elements, understanding somebody's past medical history, how they are in relationships, how they are in school, work, home life, um, their eating um, behaviors, their sleeping behaviors, um, how, they, um, how they behave in social settings. Um, so it's, it has to be essentially an interview. Um, so in, in Canada, the people that are allowed to make the diagnosis are physicians, nurse practitioners, and psychologists. So it has to be one of those three professions. Um, while I have a lot of colleagues that are counselors, and I can tell you that one, one of my colleagues that's a counselor says, Pradeep, I've got this client that I've been counseling for you know, a year, two years. I'm pretty sure they have ADHD. I can tell you 99% of the time the counselor's correct. Um, it's just the way our system is set up right now is that the counselors aren't, um, are, aren't given the authority to make a diagnosis, but I can tell you they know their clients. So counselors um, are very good at picking this up as well. So what I think, and I'm only guessing because I wasn't in that room, Laurie, but I think what they were doing there was doing some testing to, to determine your ability to basically do a test. And you're absolutely right, is that if somebody is good at test writing or doing those tests, that actually doesn't necessarily exclude that they have ADHD. But as you said, their hyper-focusing might mean they have ADHD because they do well in that environment. It's like the parent who says, there's no way my kid could have ADHD because he can play video games for 16 hours straight. He's concentrating. Well, yeah, that's concentrating, that's hyper-focusing. So, um, so it's unfortunate. Where, I, where we get frustrated is that not only are some of these assessments really expensive and they're um, not accessible to people, but sometimes they're just inaccurate. And we, I mean, if you think about adults who've gone through their entire life not having had their ADHD diagnosed or treated, now they work up the courage, the, the motivation to go get assessed, and then you get a situation like that, that can be quite demoralizing and frustrating, right? Because now, now the one opportunity that was given to you to clarify that may be gone. So I guess, um, Laurie, that's a long-winded way of saying um, that some of that testing is done. Um, I'm not sure how validated that is. That means that I'm not sure how, how, how strong the research is to say that's the way that you should make the diagnosis. But I can say with confidence that if somebody meets these criteria, we're pretty sure that they have ADHD. 
And unfortunately, there isn't a blood test, there isn't a scan of the brain, there isn't anything else that's going to prove it. And I guess my last point there is, we don't ask that of other conditions. So when you see your nurse practitioner, your psychologist, your counselor, your physician, and you say you're depressed, they go through what your symptoms are, and they may, you know, they may recommend counseling, they may recommend cognitive behavioral therapy, neurofeedback, medications. You know, we don't do a blood test for depression. We don't do a brain scan for depression. Why should ADHD have some test that is, you know, going to show two lines like a COVID test? Um, so in the end, it's really how somebody's symptoms are. Um, and I can tell you that people who've done their research often are pretty good at determining whether they have some of the symptoms that fit. So Lori, I hope that when you got frustrated with that, you won't give up um, or you haven't given up and, and hopefully pursued it with someone else and to clarify that. Thank you. Thank you for answering your questions. Uh, having seen my children through their lives thus far with ADHD, I've learned so much that I just, whatever's, whatever I'm trying to teach them, I just try to teach myself so far. But thank you for answering those questions because that was definitely a concern of mine. That is that if this is the standard testing and for a person who's good at test taking, it's not, yeah. not going Absolutely. to. So one other, one actually two quick other points. One is that I think your, your children are blessed to have you as a parent because you know what to look for, right? Um, you know what, you know, the path and journey you took so you can watch out for the pitfalls they may fall into. And the second is that in terms of doing tests, I'm convinced, I don't think I have ADHD, I've never been diagnosed, but I, I'm pretty convinced that people with ADHD have at least average, if not higher than average IQ than the rest of us mortals. Um, and what that means is that people with ADHD often do very well on tests. Um, and often that's why they go under the radar and they don't get identified until later in life when something gets harder and then they then they sort of crash and burn. Um, so just the ability to get good marks in elementary or high school doesn't rule out that they have ADHD. Then you have to ask the deeper questions. You know, did they spend all their time on homework? Did, did they ever do any homework? Did they just sort of you know, do the homework on, on the bus on the way to school? Or did they cram the night before or, or just go in and write the test and get an okay mark? Um, so it really takes some nuancing and, 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 and looking into those details. Thank you for that. <laughs> That's also fascinating when it's an all of the above answer. Of course, homework is done on the bus and cramming the night before and getting good grades anyhow. Isn't that how it works for everyone? I appreciate your, your answers. Thank you. Yeah, I, had a, I had a patient who we were helping with ADHD and I said, wouldn't it be great not to do things at the 11th hour? And they said, 11th hour, doc, I'd be lucky if I didn't do it at 1155. Um, and so 11th hour would be easy. I've still got an hour. I actually have a question myself. You had shown the brain scans and I know doc, Dr. Almond down in the States, he's the brain scan man. Um, I haven't actually seen anybody in Canada talk about it. Is there any, anything in the horizon for a physical test for uh, being able to diagnose ADHD at this point? Yeah, so, so there are people in Canada doing brain mapping and brain scans. We have somebody in North Vancouver who does a, a nuclear brain scan. Here's, here's the challenge. So, I mean, I'm, you know, I'm a physician. So if somebody, somebody has some tests that they've done, I will definitely look at the results. I'll definitely consider it. I don't ignore them. But if you were to say to me, do we need to do a test like a brain scan to make a diagnosis? No. And here's the reason for that, Keith, is if somebody fits all the criteria for having ADHD, 
and the brain scan doesn't confirm that they have ADHD, that doesn't change my opinion. I'm going to say they still have ADHD. Now, if, if they don't have ADHD, and then they come up with a brain scan, they do a brain scan, the brain scan is showing ADHD, they still haven't met the criteria for ADHD. So I'm still going to say they don't have ADHD. So I guess what I'm saying is at the end of the day, doing the brain scan or not, I mean, if it fits with the clinical picture, then it might be helpful. But if it doesn't, it's still those five criteria that are the gold standard, right? So to answer your question, I think, I think it's probably an evolving field, um, but it doesn't, it, it's, it's, it's still not, it, research hasn't gotten to the point where you can make a conclusive um, a conclusion from that. At the end of the day, um, you got to remember all these fancy pictures and images are just that, they're an image. They're not going to tell me that somebody is struggling um, financially or that somebody can't, um, you know, get their homework done or that somebody can't sit through a meeting without getting distracted. It's an image of a brain, right? Actually, I actually have one more question I want to ask you too is around emotion and ADHD. I know in the diagnostics uh, statistic manual and in most of the way they're measuring, it's really hard to measure um, the roller coaster that goes along with a lot of us. And I always try to explain that from a peer perspective. So when I'm coaching and I talk about that, everybody gets it. But if you're trying to explain that to the regular public, they'll be like, well, he's perfectly fine a minute ago. And now he's spiking, you know, he's getting upset or aggravated. As soon as uh, one of the symptoms that I used to have, actually, what got me diagnosed with ADHD was I had something called flash anger, uh, which is now called intermittent explosive disorder. So I used to go from zero to 102 seconds, be yelling, screaming, punching walls, road raging. As soon as I go up, I come right back down and I'm walking away in full blown shame um, and not understanding like why I just did or said or, um, uh, uh, express the things that I did. Um, and what would happen is everybody around me is like, holy crap, like this guy's like a ticking time bomb. Um, but inside it was just like, I, I, I know how it works now. It's like in the amygdala, um, when the, it's like the emotion comes through and most people have like kind of a Titan, uh, neural network, I guess, uh, they can stop that irrational thought from coming through. The way I call it, I, I'm not a doctor and I don't ever proclaim to be. That's kind of why I'm, I'm enjoying hooking up with you is that I've, I've got like Swiss cheese. If I'm lucky and the emotions coming out, it hits the cheese and it doesn't doesn't come out. If I'm not, it just comes shooting out like a fire hose and I can't control what I do say or anything. It has been uh, explained as kind of like that hunter gatherer, the caveman brain. So in the past, you know, if cyber tigers coming to get you and everybody's sitting around in the caveman days, I'm the guy that's going to get up and kill the tiger. But if I'm sitting in line at the McDonald's drive through and it's going too slow and I lose my crap, that's not socially accepted. So can you speak to that? It's uh, it's always something that yes. comes up uh, and it's, it can go two ways. One, you explode. And the other one, I call it like self, self-implode um so that a lot of people just stuff their feelings and they have like spontaneous combustion so they'll like burst into tears you know uh they just can't control their emotions so i'd love to hear your uh experience yeah so 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 here's where i think a lot of our um experiences with people either yourselves um if you have adhd yourself or dealing with clients and patients i think we've gotten further ahead and the dsm-5 criteria hasn't caught up yet so just to remind you, I was saying earlier, to, to meet the criteria for ADHD in childhood, you need six of these symptoms, or there's nine here, you need to have six of them. 
in adulthood you have and adolescence you need five and these are in the inattention and then in the hyperactivity or um, impulsivity again you need five five of these um, and you'll see here there are things like being restless being a bit overactive and um, being a little bit impatient not with, like i said waiting for people to finish um, speaking and so we kind of clump them together we say there's the inattention and problems with concentration and focus then there's the hyperactive or impulsive and what we've been sneaking into the impulsive and hyperactive is what you're talking about which is the emotional dysregulation um there was angry outbursts and everything else what some of us in the adhd community are a bit frustrated with now is that nowhere in the criteria is emotional outbursts right yet we see it all the time right there's not just the angry outbursts there's the um you know the um, the, the, the responses to rejection, the rejection sensitivity dysphoria type stuff. Um, there's a lot of that in there that we see on a regular basis, yet it's not made the criteria yet. So we hope in the DSM-5 revised or the DSM-6, the next one that comes out, we all haven't retired by then, um, it will actually include um, the emotional dysregulation and the angry outbursts, because you're absolutely right. That is what we see. And what, how I couch it is, I think it fits under impulsive behaviors, but it would be good to have it as a separate entity. I don't have it on these slides, but I have a, when I'm trying to explain that, I have a picture of the Incredible Hulk. And I say that, you know, somebody flips into the Incredible Hulk right away. And that's the way we see people with um, ADHD on the impulsive side. A lot of times adults come to us um, and the partner that the rest of the family said he has, so she has anger issues, right? They'll have an angry outburst, yell and scream at the kids, yell and scream at the partner. There was this really, nice fellow I, sp I spoke to about a year ago and he says he has angry outbursts and he was as polite as all of you are and I said you really and he goes let me show you doc and it was during COVID so he had the camera and he, and he said let me show you my room and he, he spun spun it around he had holes in the gyp rock where when he got angry he'd put his fist through the gyp rock and he said even as my as, even as my fist is going through the gyp rock I'm already regretting it so it doesn't take long to regret it right even as, as his fist, and he had holes over the gyp rock and so, so I totally agree with you. I think it is something that needs to be worked into the criteria. I know Dr. Barkley in the US and others have been sort of campaigning for it to be, um, but it needs to be because we see a lot of it. Um, so it, it is quite common and frankly, it gets people into trouble. Right? Yeah, it's, I've always thought, uh, I, I teach anger management. It was funny, I'd, I've taken it twice and it was the first job I actually uh, got in the city as I was coming out of school was, uh, teaching it. And I, as I was explaining to the, the executive director of this nonprofit called self-help connection that, you know, should I tell you I've taken it twice already? Uh, she's like, no, that's great. So then you can rip out all the fluff. So I turned, turned down like a, a 16 week program down to an eight week program. And as soon as the people started jockeying and for their positions of how awesome their explosions were, I was like, I'm in the same boat, man, but I got arthritis coming in my knuckle because of it. So you said that guy was putting holes in the walls. I never figured out the studs were actually 16 inches apart. And every single time I'd hit that and it would ripple up my arm <laughs> and everything else. I've never put a hole in the wall. I've also never punched, you know, been in a fight either. Like I'm, it's uh, not my nature, but yeah, when I was t t uh, 20 years old and I was walking around like a ticking time bomb, uh, you didn't want to see me pulling you over and in, in, uh, in uh, traffic when you cut me off, right? Or or whatever else. But anyways, long story short, I, I got over it. Now I teach it from a peer perspective and uh, and just share those stories. So we share them, 
but it's not jockeying for like who's the bigger man who's got the worst story it's more so holy crap why did why do i do the things you do and everybody that does experience it i swear to god we're all the most regretful shameful uh like we just don't know why it happens right but the more you raise awareness about it and everything else the better um any other questions i suppose all of us one level or another we when our stress goes up and that rear part of our brain gets lighted up, executive function numbers go down. And I know for me, I've got bipolar disorder. And for me, when I'm stressed, I, I feel like my sequencing diminishes. So I can go step one, step two, and then step three gets harder and step four is impossible. And my memory is uh, is um, uh, diminished as well. So I'm I'm wondering how many adults come to you with um, whether it's bipolar disorder or or other um, learning disorders or mental health issues that look an awful lot like ADHD. It's a great question, Ken, Ken and um, it often happens. And like I said, we're not, uh, with the adults, you do get the coexisting conditions. Um, luckily, we, over time, we've developed strategies on how to parse them out a bit. But you're right, somebody who's in a manic or hypomanic phase can have some behaviors that also look like somebody who is um, very unregulated ADHD, right? And so there can be some overlap, um, but there are ways to sort of nuance out some of the differences there. Often the people, just to use that as an example, um, often people with bipolar and how you separate them from ADHD is the ADHD person will probably not get euphoric, right? So they don't usually get the euphoric symptoms that people with bipolar can when they're in that manic or hypomanic phase. And people um, with ADHD tend to not feel, even when they feel like things are going well, they don't feel like they've got those godlike superhuman type um, um, powers. Whereas people, and again, everybody with bipolar is different, but a lot of people with bipolar, when they're in that high phase, the manic or the hypomanic phase, often feel like they're invincible. People with ADHD usually don't feel like they're invincible. They might be doing things not totally thought out, or they might be having a good day, but they usually don't feel like they're invincible. Um, and so th there, are, there are ways to piece it apart. And if there is, um, if it gets um, difficult to sort some of that out, then we do say, you know, um, we're sorting out the ADHD part. And if there is um, a concern about them, the patient client also having bipolar, then, then, then either rule it out to make sure they don't have it or confirm it and stabilize it first. Um, why it's a particular concern to us is we don't want somebody who has bipolar one or bipolar two to be put on stimulant medications um, without the bipolar um, condition being stabilized because there, the research does show that there's a higher risk of putting them into a hypomanic or manic episode. Um, so we're always cautious to look for that. But you're right, there are some um, symptoms that can overlap. Thanks. One other question, actually, I only just learned about um, dysthymia um, as a term, and I was just a fluke through my uh, therapist. Um, he's I've been with him for a long time. He's actually one of my old teachers, and he was telling me about dysthymia. Can you speak to that? Because um, we all know what depression is. What's dysthymia from... Uh, a medical point yeah. of view. I think the easy way to think of dysthymia is it's when you think about depression being a real low and um, sort of, you know, um, somebody is quite disabled with it. 
um, think of dysthymia as maybe not as much of a low. Um, so it's not sort of as, as deep or as severe symptoms of all the things think about when you think about depression. You know, you think about um, decreased concentration, decreased sleep, decreased appetite, decreased enjoyment and things that are otherwise enjoyable and all those types of things. With dysthymia, it's a, sort of a sadness and the sadness sort of lingers and it's low, but maybe not necessarily causing all the dysfunctions that a full-blown major depressive disorder or depression would cause. Um, so there are people who, you know, tough out or uh, are dysthymic and they may not be getting the help that they need. Um, and so, so it, it, it often it speaks to severity, um, Keith, and the dysfunction it causes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, but just to finish, uh, Dr. Parr, do you want to just share uh, how people can get in touch with you and what's the the process for the uh, the diagnosis that you offer and where can they get it? Sure. So probably the easiest thing is just um, going to the website um, and I've put it purposely at the bottom of my image there. It's at the adultadhdcenter.com. So your clients can be anywhere across Canada and um, we will um, sort of explain things to them if they have questions after going to the website. But otherwise, they can go to the website and learn about um, how to do the assessment. And then if they want to proceed with it, they um, basically put a request in right there, um, make the payment online. It's um, $300. Um, for a non, um, not one that's not pub publicly funded. Um, if they're in a province um, where we have a practitioner who, who can have it publicly funded, we'll try to put it through that. But most of ours end up being with nurse practitioners and they can't usually um, um, build their services to the public health care plan. Um, so they make their payment and then our staff will contact them and send out the first assessment tool. And uh, un unlike Lori's experience there, it's not a, it's not a video game or a test. It's a really detailed questionnaire. We call it a tool that goes through and really asks a lot of questions about their current medical history, um, their family history, um, their medication history, um, and a lot of other conditions. And that's really so that we can get a whole bunch of information about the patient and the client for the interview. Um, and then, and then the, when once that form is submitted, then the interview is scheduled, um, and that's done by um, a secure video link. Um, and, and at the end of the interview, the consultant will tell the patient right there and then whether they have ADHD or not. And if they have ADHD, um, either way, if they don't have ADHD, what can be done? And if they have ADHD, what are all the, first of all, the non-medication strategies? So the, as I said before, the coaching, the counseling, using schedules and routines, meditation, you know, yoga, um, exercise, diet, um, how to avoid substances. Um, and, then, and then if they want to pursue the medication option, um, we'll go through the medications and then a report's um, written up and the report gets sent to the patient um, confirming their diagnosis. So if they need it for school, accommodations or applying for the grants that um, Keith is talking about, they can use that um, because it's signed off by myself, the medical director, the educational director, the other Dr. Parhar, and then also um, the nurse practitioner who did the assessment. Um, so, this, so, and in that same report is the confirmed diagnosis, which they can use for grants or disability tax credits uh, applications, but there's also then um, very specific recommendations for medications. Um, it's almost like a recipe. It says, you know, these are the medications we recommend, start at this dosage, adjust it every couple of weeks to this dosage, watch for the, um, side, these side effects, and this is the maximum dosage. If that medication doesn't work, here's a second and a third and a fourth choice. Um, so, you know, after the assessment's done, the, the patient client is really armed with a way to move forward. Um, and, um, and can get, get on with the management of ADHD, which they've been struggling with their whole lives. So, and, and I guess the other point I should make is that 
We've talked a lot about adults with ADHD who are never diagnosed or not treated, but we also see people who in the past maybe were treated as kids um, and adolescents, but then came off the medications or now they want a reassessment. Or if they're already diagnosed and they're adults and the medications or the treatments that they're doing aren't working, right? And they need a second opinion on that. Um, so we see people who've never been diagnosed or were diagnosed and treated, now they need to be reassessed, or they're, or they're frustrated with the treatment that they're getting and they need to get that clarified. Um, and like I said, our, our reason to exist is we really want to meet the need of adults who aren't able to access services. And what had started out as uh, focused on BC, we just recognize that um, there's a massive demand across the country. And mostly because of Keith spreading the word, uh, one of the most um, the highest demands coming to us are from um, Nova Scotia. Um, and so we're um, very pleased to be able to serve the clients and patients in Nova Scotia that may not have had access otherwise. That's fantastic. I, I really appreciate you coming on. Um, again, the reason I've been, I've been working on this, trying to find a doctor uh, who would support the coaching aspect is pretty hard to blend clinical and peer support together or find somebody, people that are actually willing to have that conversation. And the minute I reached out to Dr. Bahar, the reason I did, it was actually one of my other coaches who has an anxiety disorder Um she was bugging me on a constant basis about herself having ADHD. And I was like, there's no way you're, and it's so bad because I was playing the same stereotype. You know, she was, she's the most organized person. She's my head coach, Alana, most organized person. I know, um, you know, has all her stuff together, always gets everything done. And I was stereotyping her, <laughs> which is really ironic uh, for there's like, there's no way that you could have it. And then I contacted Dr. Pahar. I said, you know, I said, I'd like to pay for it, right, for her to get tested because it was something of interest and I, I like to support my employees. And uh, anyways, uh, Dr. Pahar not only met with her, but gave it to her pro bono, which was amazing to me. And ever since we've just had a, uh, I guess, connection from there. Um, I was able to go out to Whistler uh, back in the spring and do a little um, uh, workshop with them. And then now we're in kind of talks just, flushing out where to go from here but we have some aspirations of um basically forming like an umbrella organization where you could get the diagnosis you get just like the education that dr parr was giving today you get education from a bunch of different uh, uh resources from him um counselors coaches sleep therapists dietitians the whole bit to, to uh, just look at all the different ways you could potentially treat ADHD and then, uh, and then have a, like a, an ongoing group coaching program uh, where we can take what we learn and actually implement it rather than the TikTok generation that's floating around out there. That's just watching all these little snippets of videos and then not really doing anything about it. Right. Without a structure or a scaffold, how do you know, how do you get better? Right. If you're just winging it. So we're trying to, our, our goal, or I guess mutual goal is to find ways to get um, support into way more uh, organizations and as affordable as possible. When I talk affordable for my stuff, all my coaching, all the post-secondary students are 100% funded. My uh, people in career transition and uh, entrepreneurs, 95% of them are funded at this point in time. I'm always looking for ways to make it 
cheap or reasonable because there's a lot of people out there uh, who are actually preying on the impulsivity of individuals like us who are looking for solutions but want to rake them through the coals for um, for that solution. And and I always say with coaching, and I'm sure Dr. Parr will agree, it, it's not going to go away. We can help you learn some strategies to learn ways to manage it, but it's not just going to vanish because you took a course or you did some coaching or anything like that. So we really try to do it from a from a peer perspective, understanding that this is a lifelong thing that we're going to deal with. There's two ways to go about it, though. If you do nothing about it, it'd be like riding the biggest, scariest roller coaster you've ever been on. If you do get treatment and get support and learn and educate yourself about it, and if you need medication, you get treatment that way or what have you, it's like being on the kiddie coaster, right? Either way, on the big roller coaster or the kiddie coaster, you're still going to have little ups and downs, right? It's just a choice whether you make it to kind of ignore it and just hope it goes away or go full into it, figure out ways to uh, manage it more effectively, and then move on from there. So thank you so much, Dr. Parr, for coming on. And I know uh, I know your wife's lurking around in the background, in the in the shadows. Uh, she's amazing as well. I just have to say, like, I, I'm so grateful uh, for meeting you guys and uh, can't wait to see what uh, what we're going to do in the future. So thanks so much. <music>